0: Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Coil Forever's On The Wing Podcast. Do we have an episode for you? It's a little bit uh, out of the norm. It's not the, your typical, the 10 best tricks for putting birds in the bag, but it is going to be riveting because it's a really inter- uh, interesting conversation about The true mission of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, which is that intersection between wildlife habitat and agricultural production. How, you know, when you think about pheasants and quail, they're synonymous with farm country. And this episode is about how pheasants, quail, habitat and sorghum intersects in sustainable agriculture cleaner water, healthier soils, a robust rural economy, and big numbers of pheasants and quail. Uh, And we're going to talk a little bit about a growing partnership that we have with the Sorghum Checkoff Program. To help us talk about this conversation, we've got uh, three great guests We have Eric Johansson, a guy that I've known for the better part of a decade, Uh, a farmer from South Dakota who also happens to own his own pheasant hunting outfitting business. He's from Tolstoy, South Dakota. We've got Garrett Love, a guy that uh, if you are on Twitter, you definitely know Garrett Love. He's another farmer. Uh, he's from Montezuma, Kansas, and he also owns a, um, a Kansas pheasant hunting and, and uh, quail hunting outfit um, in Kansas, as I mentioned. And we have with us Kira Everhart-Valentine. Did I get that right, Kira? Pretty close. <laughs> Who is the uh, uh, sustainability director uh, for the United Sorghum Checkoff Program, so we're gonna we're gonna have a really robust conversation about habitat, soil, water, bird numbers, and sorghum, and we're even gonna get a mid-season pheasant hunting report from Eric from South Dakota, and an early season pheasant and quail hunting report from Garrett in Kansas. But before we dive deep. Let's, uh, let's have our guests tell us a little bit about um, each of themselves. So let's start off. Uh, I'm going to start off with the guy that I've known for a decade. Eric, how's it going in South Dakota? Tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, and what you do in Tolstoy.
1: Uh, it's going well, Bob. Uh, one, I just wanted to say thanks for for inviting me on to talk about uh, farming, ranching, and wildlife habitat. Um, you know me; those are the three things I really like to talk about, and I have a tendency to maybe talk too much about it. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, I'm just a farmer, rancher, uh, and wildlife enthusiast, and um, uh, located in central South Dakota. Have the have the honor and the privilege of getting a farm with my my older brother and my father. Um, grew up on this farm. I'm the fourth generation. My daughter is coming up in the ranks as a as a teenager, as a fifth generation, hopefully someday. And um, yeah, we're just a uh, farm ranch and I'm pretty passionate about wildlife habitat. And uh, we're kind of smack dab right in the middle of uh, pheasant utopia. Um, and uh, it's, it's a common, common thing that uh, Pheasants Forever talks about all the time. You know, you have the habitat, you're probably going to have the birds. And we're in that geographical location mm-hmm. in the Prairie Pothole region of South Dakota that, that definitely holds true.
0: And for folks that have attended national pheasant fest and quail classic over the years, you're a guy that's, uh, appeared on the stage before.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Talk about, uh, honor and humbling, uh, opportunity to, to talk at national pheasant fest about our operation. Uh, just some of the things we're doing environmentally, uh, both on a production standpoint and the wildlife habitat standpoint, you know, um, uh, water quality standpoint. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was that was a great honor to be able to get to, get a chance to share that message in, in front of that uh, that crowd.
0: I'm trying to remember. I, I think you were the warm up for uh, was it Secretary Vilsack back when you were speaking or was it Colin Peterson?
1: Colin Peterson was there. Yes, Colin Peterson. Um, if I remember right, uh, Senator Thune was there as well. And uh, yeah, so I was I was the the little farmer on the stage that probably nobody listened to, but uh, it was a good time. Uh, I don't
0: I don't I don't believe that for a minute. Uh, we've uh, we've worked together for a long time. You've hosted media events for pheasants forever at uh, at your um, your farm in Tolstoy, and and one of the big reasons that uh, you're on this particular episode is kind of the. Your, your conservation ethic and how sorghum, which is going to be a featured component of today's conversation, is a clear um, and major component of your operation. Before we hit record, you made the statement, sorghum will change your life or something to that effect, right?
1: Uh, you know, it will. It will. <clears throat> it will. If, if you're a wildlife enthusiast, if you're a bird lover, if you enjoy any type of wildlife, and you're in farming country, um, it it small amounts of acres of sorghum can provide big benefits. So it it will. It absolutely will.
0: So we're going to dive deep into that. But that's a perfect transition to to Kira who uh, is smiling broadly when uh, when the statement sorghum will change your life is 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 made on a podcast. Uh, Kira, you're the sustainability director at the United Sorghum Checkoff Program. What's that mean?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we 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 love hearing statements like that from from farmers. So, uh really glad to hear it, Eric. So, the sustainability initiative at the United Sorghum Checkoff Program, it's it's is something that was has really been um, receiving a lot of attention, and we've been investing a lot of of resources and energy in that. Uh, especially here in the past year, um, there's been a number of efforts prior to that, but it's really ramped up. And one of those things was was to bring on a sustainability director, which is which is how I got here today. So I've actually been uh, with the checkoff just since uh, early this year, late February and you know my role and goal has been to really take that big broad word of sustainability that kind of means something different to each one of us and figure out what does that really mean to the sorghum industry and what does that mean to our sorghum growers and so how do we take not only um the big ideas behind sustainability, but also the opportunities and begin to really narrow that down to something concrete that we can align with our growers so that as they contribute to the overall sustainability of their operations of agriculture as a whole, which many of them have already been putting many efforts into already, but to be able to take that and and capture that in a way that they see value on their operation and they are able to continue to, to kind of be the leaders in, in driving that needle and in a way that is good for their communities and in a way that is good for, uh, for those, those farms as a whole.
0: Hmm. And what's your background? Did you grow up? Um, I think you're, you're calling us from Kansas today, right? Did you grow up in Kansas and on a farm?
2: So I did not grow up on a farm. Um, my my family, my roots are, are certainly in rural areas, but I actually grew up uh, in a in an in an urban area in Wichita, Kansas. Um, okay. I am now currently based in Manhattan, Kansas. but The checkoff is headquartered out of Lubbock, Texas, but I I am um, headquartered out of uh, Manhattan, Kansas. But You know i spent the better part of a decade now uh, working with sorghum either directly or indirectly prior to this i was actually um part of a a management team for a pretty large research program at kansas state university um it was a feed the future program we were focused specifically on research in sorghum and millet on a global level so Mm -hmm. i worked with a number of global partners in addressing you know all kinds of big issues for sorghum that many of them come right back here to our U.S. growers in terms of questions of drought tolerance and pest management and end use, food, process, food processing, those sorts of things. So, um, you know, that's where I came from immediately. But prior to that, I actually um, lived and worked in western Kansas, a prime sorghum growing country, where I worked with uh, with farmers and, and agribusinesses on a number of different uh, levels, but was kind of right there with, with sorghum in my backyard. And it was a pretty important part of of those individuals um, operations that I worked with
0: so we're gonna come back because I need to learn a fair bit about sorghum so we're gonna come back to you and talk uh, more in depth but before we get too far when gonna introduce Garrett love into the conversation also coming to us from from Kansas and the Let's say the, the film-debuted star of the, the new video coming out between Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever, and Sorghum. Garrett is uh, uh, featured, along with his family, on, on his farm, talking about the intersection between sorghum, pheasants, quail, and a healthy environment. Um, Garrett, welcome, and, and tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Bob. And you brought
3: up Twitter earlier, and and that's kind of I think how we kind of quote unquote know each other from the past yep. several few few years, anyways. And so it's good to, I guess, uh, see you via via this podcast and and chat with you. But yeah, I'm um, from Montezuma, Gray County, Kansas, and part of why you know I'm passionate about this is. You know I love pheasants and quail and love sorghum. Gray County, uh, for, is the top producing sorghum uh, producing county in the state and also in the country if you adjust for size. And that's where I've grown up, and I've always believed that's a huge been a huge part of uh, what uh, is has been very strong bird numbers for the last several decades, um, having that high n- amount of sorghum that we have. Gray County, Ford County, Finney County, right through where we are in Southwest Kansas in that zone. We're kind of right in the middle of it. Um, has always had uh, large acres of sorghum, and, and we've always had that on our farm. But yeah, I grew up out here as a farm kid. Um, ended up my getting kind of involved in politics and government for a while. I served in the state Senate, chaired the uh, Senate Ag Committee in Kansas and ended up uh, coming back to the farm probably about four or five years ago. My uh, dad has always loved wildlife, loved conservation. Um, He was one of the early adopters of no-till practices in our area, um, which has been phenomenal for both our soil health, um, for for moisture, and then also for wildlife, uh, having that cover and... um, and what that's done has been great for our farm and and also for the birds. Uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, great to join all you guys today and look forward to chatting.
0: It, you know, you brought up your background is a state senator in Kansas, and you like you mentioned you were the um, um, chair of the ag committee, and then you made the decision to to move back to the family farm. Tell us a little bit about uh, what went into that decision for you personally.
3: Well, you know, we we invested a lot of time and effort kind of towards the political arena for we ended up serving for six years. And I first got in, I ran for the House and and uh, I beat the Speaker of the House and then went over to the Senate and it was going good. But then my wife and I had one kid and then a second kid and then uh, now we have three. And we kind of decided being five hours from the Capitol and driving back and forth and Mm -hmm. all that wasn't good. And we also we both wanted to raise our kids in a small town, small schools, uh, kind of the communities we both grew up in and loved Montezuma and wanted to raise them on the farm. And like Eric, my little daughter, she's not a teenager yet, but she still says she's going to be a farmer someday. She's five, almost six years old. And and uh, that's kind of special. And it really does put a greater importance on protecting uh, the future and the sustainability of, of an operation when you're thinking of not just today, but but the next generation.
0: Yeah, that came out um, loud and clear in the video with your daughter on screen. It is cutest, cutest little girl I've ever seen in my life, by the way, and the perfect <laughs> last name for her. And the entire time I could see Eric uh, shaking his head, head in Affirmative. You know, as you're talking about your story about moving, moving back home to the farm, those rural roots. Have you you had some of those similar uh, thoughts process uh, in your own family, Eric?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and Gary can attest to this. You don't uh, very few people decide to either get involved with the family farm or come back to the family farm from a previous occupation out of college or or whatever it is. Mm-hmm in the hopes of becoming wealthy and all this other stuff um, it, it's an emotional tie right it's it's a way of life it's it's um a lot of times there's a lot of generational history that uh, kind of brings you back and you want to be a part of it you know and mm-hmm. kind of write that story and uh, yeah and anytime you can you can get back you're doing it most farmers and ranchers are doing it because it's what they love yeah, it really is. And and to bring family into it and watch the next generation, you know, be raised in it and then, you know, learn more about it uh, firsthand is
0: is pretty special. Yeah. And that's where, you know, this particular podcast has been in the planning works for Kira, what do you think? Probably three months, right? I mean, it's it, most, most podcasts for listeners is... You know, behind the curtain, they come together pretty quickly, a couple of days. But this one, you know, has been in the works for a long time. And as as I thought about how to approach this one, you know, Eric and, and Garrett, your backgrounds in my mind are so similar. And the sensibilities of rural roots, uh, love of the family farm, rural just that that connection to the the farm that you have agriculture but also your connection to pheasant and quail hunting and to me as i thought about okay how do we bridge this conversation that's intended to be sorghum focused right sorghum when i think about both of you sorghum is the connector between your love of rural america your your work as um, as farmers in agriculture industry and your business yet passion for pheasants and quail at the, it, it, when I thought about this as a Venn diagram, sorghum is the center of that Venn diagram. Is that an accurate assessment from, from let's start with Garrett who's shaking his head already. Um, tell me, tell me why that's accurate in your mind, Garrett.
3: Sure. Well, I think I, like I said earlier, I think sorghum has been the, <clears throat> um, key to one of the reasons why gray County anyways, where I've grown up has had real big bird numbers since, since I was a kid, since I'd, you know, we'd have 30 family and friends come out and get 120 birds at noon. And that wasn't, that's not every year, <laughs> but I, but I remember those, uh, you know, those days, as a kid growing up with my grandpa and, and, uh, would always come back and uncles, um, and, um, uh, come out on opening day. And we've always had that, that, those big sorghum numbers. And, and at this point, that's even more accurate because having real high sorghum prices, which the last couple of years, it uh, hadn't been as high. We still grew a lot of sorghum, but having those prices come up like they have has made it hmm. to where it's a, um, it, has value in terms of what we're talking about, conservation, sustainability, wildlife, but then also for profitability for an operation. And Mm -hmm. when you have that, uh, all those things, it's kind of saying, you know, we maybe should be looking at even more acres here, which we, we have a lot of sorghum acres. We grew around 5,000 acres of sorghum this year and, and, um, and we've hunted, uh, made it through about 1500 of it so far. So still got a lot out there. You know,
0: as you talk about, I'm, I'm looking at a quote that Eric quote slash email that Eric wrote me um, in regard to this podcast. He's, he's, he wrote, I'm looking forward to a great discussion about how farming and ranching with a focus on long-term soil health and profitability can have positive impacts on wildlife and how sorghum plays a role in both. It's like, and that e- you didn't see that email, Garrett. It was it came directly from from um, from Eric to me. So so expand on that, Eric, because you almost said verbatim. Garrett almost said verbatim what you wrote in the email. Sorghum is the intersection between all those things for you.
1: Yeah, Garrett. I mean, from I guess taking a look at it first and foremost, just to give you a little idea of how we approach it on our farm is it's all about how do we take the best. Possible care of the resources we have and first and foremost most it's the soil right so um making that as healthy and productive as possible and uh that's that's one of the key components of our diversified operation um you know we're not just a two or three crop rotation we we provide on most years we're we're probably growing anywhere from eight to nine different crops including really
0: what are, what yeah, are, so say some of those. What are what are eight to nine? Because obviously corn and beans, right? What else?
1: Yeah, yeah. Corn, beans, wheat are the three major ones in our operation. But then you have sorghum, alfalfa, uh, millet, teff grass for forage production, um, and then rye. We'll do some rye for cover crop production. And then obviously, when you get into the cover crops, you're talking turnips, radishes. You know, that's mm-hmm. a whole. Uh, array of blends that we'll put in and a lot of that is predominantly for soil health Hmm. um but again that's a whole nother rabbit hole that that we could dive into and we could be talking about for the next five hours so i'm going to try to steer away from that but you know from a farming standpoint it's all about how do you take you know the best possible care of the resources you have and how do you do it consistently and I mean, that kind of comes down to the sustainability part of it. Mm-hmm. And for any farming and ranching operation, your, your sustainability is short-term profitability. Um, I, I, I haven't seen a farm or ranch that survives generations if it doesn't consistently, you know, be profitable and survive those fluctuations because it's going to happen. Um, we've seen it just in the last couple of years where we've gone from highs to highs and, and the lowest of lows. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's trying to find things that work in, you know, a farmer or ranchers operation that that can minimize some of the, the risk that a guy takes. And for our operation, that's where sorghum, it doesn't encompass a, you know, 5000 acres by any means. Um, most years, sorghum will be about 10 to 15 percent of our operation. But but it has major implications just on those those amount of acres for us just because of the type of crop it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's an incredibly hardy. We're all dry land farming. Um, so when we do get dry, we can count on those acres of sorghum, being able to really withstand that, survive that. And it gives us pretty comfort knowing that we have that available if we do get dry when the rest of our crops are going to fail. Um, so from a sorghum standpoint, not only is it some grain production, the forage sorghum aspect of it providing you know forage, Um, lots of high quality tonnage and feed for, for the cattle herd. Um, That's kind of where that, that plays into, to, I guess, a puzzle of our operation. Then you take in a fact that kind of the secondary um, when it comes for, you know, the production agriculture first, the secondary benefit is, is environmental and wildlife uh, benefits, um, especially in a no-till system which I'm, I'm sure Garrett is in, in uh, dry land, Kansas as well. Um, that, that's where you see the big benefits for wildlife and, and environmental standpoint, because you have that incredible root structure of a sorghum plant similar to corn, maybe even so much mo- more so um, that is holding the soil in place that is keeping nutrients from running off that is filtering rainfall. Um, it's, it's producing soil organic matter. Um, as we leave that, that crop in the field, you harvest it, the stubble stands good for the wildlife. I mean, they're just, when you start digging into the little pieces, they all really start adding up. And that's, that's where the big benefit for our operation comes into play is how everything starts working together. And, uh, and then, you know, making that kind of a, the focus of of uh, the operation is is how do you take best possible care of your resources and stay profitable in the short term. Yeah,
0: that was really well articulated. And and you know, we're, I want to pull on some of those threads, but before we get too far, I you know, I I think about you know from a pheasant hunter's perspective, you know, when when we talk about sorghum. You one of the things I love about it. In a lot of cases, it's a little bit shorter, so you can see your dogs work, and it it feels like more and more states, state agencies are putting sorghum as food plots on public lands on WMAs. And so, so Kira, for for folks that think they know what sorghum is, you know, but maybe don't come from a farm background. Um, explain it visually, and then we'll dive into, you know, some of the environmental benefits that Eric touched on. But a lot of hunters, probably their intersection with sorghum has been, you know, on a WMA or a, a, a waterfall production area. And it, 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 describe what it looks like and how it uh, how it stands out
2: sure so well i guess perhaps the i should start by saying it can look very different depending on what kind of sorghum you've you've planted um you know it it is that cereal grain crop um comes in in different colors different sizes some have heavy biomass or a lot of leaves some have less so so it can look very different depending on the kind that you're that you're planting but Hmm. The the sorghum that most people would see if they were driving down the highway and they they went by a farmer's field, it's typically gonna be the grain sorghum very frequently. Um, That's what a lot of people think of when they think of what that looks like. So uh, kind of a a medium height plant that has this really tight uh, head of lots of little berries, they call them, these little grains. Um, Most of the time there's there's quite a bit of of leaves and biomass. I mean, Eric just kind of uh, referred to how that actually is one of the the great values that sorghum has from a from an environmental standpoint Um, but you know as it as it prepares for harvest as it starts to kind of uh be be ready to to be cut it's this frequently it's this beautiful red color that's what a lot of people think of Mm -hmm. this just deep kind of mahogany color but at the same time you will see blonde sorghums or white sorghums as well Um, you know, more infrequently, there's other colors, you know, deeper, dark black sorghums, but that, that, that deep red kind of medium height plant, that just beautiful field of that mahogany color is really what I think a lot of people think of when, when they think of that typical grain sorghum that you see out there.
0: And what's, you know, I think a lot of people know, you know, where's, where corn is used, right? Corn syrup or, or soy. What's sorghum used for? Like I know it's in a ton of stuff, but give us a... You know, it's not not intrinsically known by everybody how sorghum ends up in the foods we eat or the foods our dogs eat.
2: Right. So, um, you know, sorghum is grown around the world. And so depending on where you are in the world, it may be used for a number of different things. But if we want to talk about here in the United States, the vast majority of the sorghum that we grow here um is is going to go to export markets so frequently that's going to be uh livestock feeds or also there's there's other uses as well um it's going to go to to ethanol use as well as uh livestock feeds here in the u.s so from an export standpoint actually um you know china is currently our biggest buyer but we're also uh, sending sorghum to to spain japan mexico so a number of different african countries and, and others you know in asia and beyond But what's interesting is we do have this smaller proportion of, of sorghum um, that is being used for those food grade uses, the pet foods. And that is actually really growing. And so we're, we're really excited to see how this is really kind of this burgeoning market. And like you say, it can be used in a number of different ways. You know, I've talked to people who said, Oh wow. You know, the only thing that I remember about sorghum is that my mom used to, used to have me eat it as a syrup because they they yeah. lived down in, in a southern state right so there, there is sorghum syrup but you're we're actually seeing it used increasingly in um cereals and snack foods and other gluten-free products breads etc um we also see it used quite heavily in a number of pet foods i mean i've seen it in dog foods and cat foods i've seen it in horse feeds i mean so we think livestock but in fact it has a number of companion food applications as well and then you know and then also kind of within that there are um they're increasing uses in regards to looking at how at what its um, value is from a nutraceutical standpoint and those kinds of things. So it, it really is a very versatile crop that, that can be used quite a bit. So it's not just, you know, what is fed to, to poultry or, or to beef. It's actually, um, you know, we as humans can eat it. And it's, it's got a lot of really great nutritional benefits.
0: So you, Kira and Garrett are, are calling in from Kansas and in my mind, whether this is right or wrong, and that's what the question is going to... Kansas, to me, feels like the... Epi- and, and Garrett alluded to this where it's grown most, but Kansas feels like the epicenter of sorghum, in my mind, as a bird hunter. Because when you go to Kansas, um, again, it's it's used on state lands. I see it in farmer's fields. that I've been in Texas uh, quail hunting, and I've seen it there pretty consistently. Seen it in Nebraska. Um, Eric is a little bit like stretching the geography of my mind's view of where sor- where I've seen sorghum in, in northern South Dakota. I see it in western Minnesota, where in southwest Minnesota and, and uh, Minnesota DNR um, wildlife management areas, not as much on farm fields, but I've seen it used on state wildlife lands a lot. Um, same thing in Iowa. So if I think about Kansas as the center of the bullseye. Is that accurate? And is it kind of a Great Plains and then it's spreading as, as people learn a little bit more about its benefits and its adoption, its, um, its value to wildlife, that it is sort of a crop that's exploding in interest around the country?
2: Well, so your your observation that Kansas feels like an epicenter would not be entirely wrong. And that's because when you think of what we call the sorghum belt, which is where the majority of the sorghum is grown, that actually stretches from South Dakota. Uh, down through you know, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and, and and down into Texas as well. So that really is that uh, that belt, and it tends to it follows the the Great Plains. And the reason that it does that is it, it is a semi-arid climate in a lot of those areas. And one of sorghum's greatest strengths is the fact that it is very heat and drought tolerant as a crop. Mm. And so you know Eric referred to how even in, in challenging times, he can still count on getting you know a crop through through with his sorghum and so that's really a lot of what drives that now there's other um you know i think market components as well but that that's a really big reason why that's there now that being said it's not limited to just that area Um, you know kansas is the largest sorghum producer and texas follows kansas so those are the two biggest states But you get out of the sorghum belt and it definitely is still grown in a number of different areas across the country, Um, you know, for different uses might be specific to to something that's in that particular area, but it can be grown in a lot of different places and we are seeing it grown like you um, have observed in 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 numerous locations and it can do very well even in those more humid environments those those wetter environments it can certainly do very well we just certainly see the greatest um proportion in that that sorghum belt which is you know just what you've
0: observed as um um as i mentioned earlier there's a video coming out which uh which you and, and garrett are the kind of the signature stars in the video and in the, in that video you're, you're quoted as saying sorghum is really an inherent inherently sustainable crop it's water smart and can wait for rain produces biomass and residue which helps protect the soil and, and eric's touched on on some of the biomass as well um i want i want to dive deeper into it's water smart and can wait for rain tell, tell me a little bit more about that
2: so so sorghum really has this capability that is that is a really um cool capability and that is you know it, it as it goes through it's growing and if it kind of hits a dry spell it's able to kind of sit and wait and just sort of hold instead of continuing to just try and grow through it and use up all the resources that it has it has this capability of kind of sitting perhaps more than uh, than than other crops to wait until that next rain comes to then continue to go so it's that resiliency that it has it's mm. built in that makes it particularly good in, in those those drought or, or heat-stricken areas uh, you know that's the thing that you'll hear time and time again from a variety of different people is it can just do well, even when things are really tough. It, you can count on it to to produce. And you know, when we when we think about just the variety of challenges that farmers are facing, when we think about things, you know, such as water scarcity. We think about, you know, issues of of unpredictability around, you know, what the weather patterns are going to be. Those types of things having this crop that that does well in those tough conditions really brings a lot of value for for yeah.
0: growers. Eric's been shaking his head the entire time in in, in an affirmation. And do you feel like you know, you as Kira mentioned, you're sort of on the northern edge of where sorghum has traditionally been grown. Um, how's it produced for you? Because you've mentioned it as a, a crop that sort of stabilizes your 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 production.
1: Yeah, yep. Yeah. And and we are. We are definitely on the northern edge of where you can really expect good yields on the production grain sorghum side. Uh the forage sorghum always does well. Um Our tricky part is we deal with a shorter growing season right so winter tends to hang along around a lot longer in the spring our soil temperatures tend to warm up slower Uh, sorghum ideal soil temperatures you want it in that 60 to 65 degrees and then we got to try to get that crop grown prior to the first frost which i mean this year we had we had a frost that ding up some fields uh, the second week of september which was earlier than normal it was kind of an anomaly, but by October 1st, you can usually expect that you're going to, you're going to have a frost. Um, so trying to find a variety of sorghum now, as of the last couple of years, there are starting to get some better grain sorghum varieties that, are, that we're working with and they've, they've performed better um, as far as a shorter day growing season on those varieties. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty exciting, but that's one of our limitations. Um, and then obviously we're in an extremely volatile weather area. I mean, we can go from, well, last year, 2019, we set precept records. We had three times the, the normal amount of precept uh, in one year. Um, and then two years before that, uh, we were lucky to get, I think, 10 inches uh, during the entire growing season. So those volatilities um, can get tricky. The years where we have more rain, we don't know when those are usually different crops and our, our farm will return better for us. Hmm. Um, the drier years, that's when the sorghum, sorghum really works. So, uh, but far as the, the importance of it is, I mean, you can dive down rabbit holes, uh, far as agronomically speaking, soil health principles. Um, but, uh, it's got a lot of great characteristics that I like as far as a root biomass. You ever dig up a sorghum plant and actually dig a root pit, you can see the extensive uh, root structure of that plant. Now that might not sound exciting to anybody that wants to go see what it's doing for pheasants and quail and white tail deer, mm-hmm. but it, it starts, it's a foundation, right? It starts mm-hmm. in your soil and uh, everything else builds from that. So we can have a crop that, that, has an extensive root system. So it's gonna build soil organic matter in our soils quicker. Soil organic matter is gonna help that soil hold more water in the drought years. So not only do you have a crop that doesn't use as much water when it doesn't need it, right? Can actually shut itself down. You now have a crop that's gonna put more uh, organic matter more so than like a soybean, you know, with a smaller root system in the ground quicker. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes years, but in that rotation it'll happen. Increasing that soil's ability to hold water—it's—it's—I um, mean—it's—it's it's kind of a no-brainer yet for us. It's—it's it's a major component of all the pieces of the puzzle that kind of fit together. Um, then you can get in the wildlife benefits, which we haven't even touched on yet. But uh, and you know, Garrett could probably speak more to that than than me. But uh, that's one of the key reasons um, that it kind of got a start on our farm uh, is, is from the wildlife benefits and the forage production. And then it kind of, you know, moved into the grain, grain production side. Cause we saw the benefits there on on certain amount of acres.
0: I think you just earned like co-hosting titles for this podcast because you, you took us right to the trend, the perfect transition, Eric, to the, uh, to the wildlife benefits component in, in, you know, I mentioned the, the video that we, we partnered with Sorghum on um, and, uh, a number of times. And I pulled another quote from Kira in that video. You are very quotable in the video, Kira. Um, you said, when it comes to upland birds, sorghum is really cool. And you it, it, this, there was this glint in your eye and explosion. Uh, sorghum has a way of supporting wildlife populations that is really unique. When a farmer links working sorghum ground with a conservation area, in other words, habitat, the combination makes for a fantastic foundation for upland bird populations to do extremely well. So rather than to ask you about that quote, I want to ask Garrett about that quote, because Garrett's the one that's um, illustrated that on his own family farm and in his hunting operation. Tell us about the wildlife benefits of of sorghum, for for your your hunting operation, Garrett.
3: Yeah, you know it's a it's a grain that is very that the birds love. Uh, you were asking Kira uses earlier, and she was talking about pet foods. I don't know that she actually mentioned bird food. I was in Menards the other day, and and um, there's you know bird feed mixes, and, and I was in lots of of uh, milo in those and uh, and i think i then i looked it up online and i saw it's, it's actually a pretty substantive amount of of bushels uh per year go to bird feed and that doesn't surprise me at all because of uh when i'm cleaning pheasants uh, sorghum is is something that i find a lot of you know so um when i'm cleaning them and you can kind of check out what they've been eating um but the thing that I think makes it even potentially better in some ways is, is the cover, you know, like corn, you know, birds like corn too. Uh, You cut it and uh, there's, there's a good amount of corn on the ground, you know, you, but it's not that good of cover. Same way with soybeans, you know, they'll eat on soybeans, but there's no cover there. And that Mm -hmm. puts the birds pretty vulnerable. With the sorghum, especially our irrigated sorghum, you have a tall, I mean, you guys called it not as tall, I guess, not as tall as standing corn, but but it's uh, tall enough with a lot of good leaves, um, good biomass, so, they're, so they have that as cover and they can be out there eating at the same time. Um, and I think that's uh, very valuable and that partially goes into, you know, uh, the value of of no-till you know leaving everything standing Uh, like eric said his family's done my dad i think you know he started with minimum till kind of started transitioning one of the earlier ones to move to no-till then this would be i guess the 80s and the late 80s 90s and you know we found that to be of great benefit to our production to our soil but um, also for our birds for our pheasants and quail Mm. Um, Kira touched on having conservation areas you know in the vicinity we started with our with our circles you have 125 acres you know we irrigate generally speaking and you then have with each of those circles you have four corners and so those corners are about 35 acres together and we've started trying to um, convert a lot of those to CRP or another type of conservation practice. Um, and then you're really going because you have great bedding, great cover, you have water, uh, all the time when you're irrigated and, uh, even whether it rains or doesn't. And then you have great, a great food source there and the birds, um, have really thrived with that. And <clears throat> we've, we've kind of enjoyed seeing that transition and for, and for the farm, it's kind of been able to target your better acres and then, kind of some of these smaller ones around it, um, start making that transition the same way. If you look at performance, which, uh, some of the corners are better soils than others, like some, uh, you know, we probably could, you know, you could farm, but it's still a small chunk of ground seven or eight, eight, eight acres each, um, where you can kind of basically have that for wildlife and, and really
0: see the benefits of that. So it, corners which are phenomenal habitat uh, areas but they sort of primarily exist in dry land America Kansas, Nebraska, Colorado a lot of listeners in Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota aren't going to know what you mean by corners so so explain explain what you mean by um, um, a corner that is left for wildlife Garrett.
3: Yeah and, and I think you've met and primarily exist in irrigated, uh, America, not dry. It doesn't exist in dry land, but, but yeah, so we have our, our sprinklers, um, systems, which for us, you know, they're all about a quarter mile long. And so on a quarter of ground, it's going to go to the road or go to the edge of that quarter on each side and just goes in a circle. But as you kind of envision in your head, or maybe you've, you've flown over, flown over, western kansas or different parts of you know southern nebraska and eastern colorado before you can envision it it's a square with a circle in it and um they're just kind of in some of the areas just hundreds of them that are sitting there and so it it adds up to a lot of acres um but yeah so they're they're kind of like triangles as you you know if you envision that Uh, with a little bit of a curve to it and we we like hunting those a lot i mean they're they're great areas
0: particularly great for bobwhite quail
3: they are they are and that's you know that's one thing that's been really fun to see of a shift in my lifetime so i talked about earlier growing up having all the family and friends come out and and uh opening weekend dad never let us shoot bobwhite quail because we didn't have that many and we, I didn't get to shoot them at all as a kid because a population was not that strong. But when I got to about college or the year after college, we've just seen a huge surge of bobwhite quail in, uh, in Southwest Kansas. And I mean, to the point where we've saw some years we'd see the pheasant numbers go down and we saw, uh, the quail numbers really coming up. I mean, the past probably five years, we've, we've been really happy with that and i was talking to some biologists actually pheasants forever biologists about it a little bit as far as how that works like why the pheasant numbers go down a little and the bobwhite quail numbers keep surging and and um, i know it was on a little bit of timing of the hatch and the some big rains Mm -hmm. little rains and and uh i don't know but it's fun to see I, i my my wife's a lot better at whistling than me i actually can't whistle and so we'll sit out there and uh She'll we'll just call back. We'll still call back and forth to the to the quail and and uh, she'll call them right in. I mean, she'll, we'll be sitting there either on <laughs> the backyard or we'll just be in the pickup out somewhere, and she'll just get them right up, and it's it's pretty fun. Little bit, the girls you, love it.
0: You talked uh, earlier about um, um, you know I, I made the comment about sorghum sometimes being shorter, so you can see the dogs, and you're like, well. Sorghum can actually be pretty tall, and you're right, because it, you know, when you're when you're five foot seven something, you know, it, it's all relative, right? <laughs> Everything's tall for me, um, but it, it, there's such a diversity in different um, kind of strains of sorghum, right? That whether we're talking about grain or sorghum or forage sorghum, and we even see this, we if folks said have bought. Um, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's signature series seed mixes. Sorghum is an integral part of a ton of those mixes, and I think particularly the Blizzard Buster mix. And I think Eric, you, you're smiling. You, I know you have Blizzard Buster on on your property with sorghum, because that's the hundred pound gorilla of winter cover. That's how we term it in our in our um, in our marketing around it so there is a dramatic difference in size of sorghum grain sorghum versus uh forage sorghum short versus tall i don't know the difference between necessarily grain versus um forage so explain that to me what's what um what's the difference between those two types tall sorghum short sorghum what's the usage uh,
1: yeah, my mind's just racing, talk, thinking about what Garrett had talked about, the, the corners and everything. So as a wildlife habitat manager, I would just love to have that on our operation. Uh, we're a little different. Um, we're in the prairie pothole region, right? So we have all these little intermittent depressions, and it's worked best for us to take those out of production. Um, so we can farm the better stuff, increase our yields there. And then those those slough areas, as we call them in this area, uh, leave to a, a wetland grass. And then sorghum plays an intricate part of, of our habitat. So like Garrett was saying, in those corners, they're planting grass, CRP pollinator mixes, and maybe leaving some sorghum stand right along there for mm-hmm. the wildlife. We're doing that in, in our wetland areas, or as we call them, the sloughs. And on the downwind side of all those sloughs, so they're a little bit protected when the snow blows, that's where we're putting in, excuse me, putting in our sorghum plots. And when it comes to our wildlife plots, our food and cover plots, sorghum is the number one thing I use. Um, We've pretty much gone all the way from corn, uh, mainly because of all the benefits that that different varieties of sorghum uh, present. And as you were saying, there are different types of sorghums, um, and you know, in, in a lot of our areas, it is it is what we're using is a leafier grain sorghum. So hmm. something that's going to stand, it's a little taller, <clears throat> a little taller, really good standability, um, with more leaf retention, because uh, what that's doing is providing thermal cover in, in, during the winter. So where we're at, central, north central, south Dakota, um, one of the key components to sustaining high bird numbers when it comes to pheasants, we're not in quail area, but pheasants, uh, sharp-tailed grouse and some Hungarian partridge is, is having good winter cover because we can have some nasty winters that come early and stay late. And, you know, pheasants in particular, uh, are inherently probably one of the toughest birds, uh, I've ever witnessed and they can handle a lot, but, Mm exposed, you know, prolonged exposure to extreme cold temperatures without being able to get in the cover. Say the snow blows all shut, um, blows your cover shut, fills it all in. That can be detrimental. So what that sorghum does, it provides an incredible standability, a um, lot of leaf retention, really good thermal cover, more so than other crops. And you can you can have that in a smaller acre uh, area. Now, corn is phenomenal but you have to have really big blocks. Mm -hmm. So if we're trying to make the most out of of what we're doing, um, that's where the sorghum plays a key component in that winter cover um, for the birds. And the fun thing about it is it seems like the pheasants are just naturally attracted to it. Uh, Literally. It it doesn't matter what time of year it is. It can be 70 degrees uh, early fall, and that's where you're normally going to find birds. Um, obviously when it's 10 degrees below zero, the wind's blowing and you got six inches of snow on the ground, that's where you're going to find birds. So um, using those different varieties of sorghum and getting back to, to your original question is a forage sorghum is usually, and, and Kira may know way more about this than I do. I just refer to it as anything a forage sorghum is usually going to be in that realm of five feet or taller. So they'll, Forage sorghum, some forage sorghums uh, mixes that you have in your blizzard buster the pheasants forever blizzard buster mix it we 've planted we 've done some test plots and stuff, and you know some of that can get ten to twelve foot tall mm-hmm. um, now all of that stand alone you know if you 're only planting that it 'll work, but the the magic comes in like you said when you start blending that in with some stronger stock stature shorter stature grain sorghums because as it freezes and the wind blows, that plant goes in a dormancy, it dies. That tall forage sorghum is going to break off. And it's basically going to kind of, kind of form like cattail pockets, so mm-hmm. to speak. So the seed head that's on the top of that sorghum is going to end up down in the ground where it's protected. So the birds can get to it. The stalk is still kind of standing there. It just, it, it forms phenomenal, phenomenal winter protection. And that's like I said, in our operation, when it comes to wildlife, um, it is it is our number one uh, food plot uh, crop that we grow mainly because it provides everything you need all all at one time. You get you have the food, you have the cover. It's it's just great.
0: That that was a wonderful explanation, and and it's a, that's a gold nugget um, for anybody that owns their own little piece of property that they use as their own hunting land. And they maybe don't, let's say they only have 50 or 100 acres. That's where that, um, the sorghum, particularly, not not to make a commercial out of blizzard buster mix. But uh, as you mentioned, it is a way to create, as our biologists say, the kitchen next to the bedroom in a habitat mix. Where it's that blizzard buster, as you talked about, it's thermal cover for a tough winter and it's got food integrated right into it, which makes it perfect for northern areas uh, of the pheasant range. Um, when I watched, again, when I watched the video that we talked about, Garrett, and you've mentioned this a couple times, uh, no-till, and minimum till, and how, how you harvest sorghum, but it... You know, when I think about driving across Iowa in October, you know, I I think about like just the black desert, right? Where when when the crops are harvested and then it's just the black dirt is blown onto the side of the roads. And, and you can see, a, I, I'm not an agronomist, I'm not a biologist and I'm not a farmer, but I can see the soil problems there. I can see the water quality problems there. But when I watched the video of you harvesting sorghum, the amount of residual cover left on the landscape, I don't need to be an agronomist or a biologist. I can just be a hunter and a person that cares about the environment and see the intrinsically natural benefits of that. Tell me about how you harvest sorghum and how it's so much different than some of the other um alternatives
3: well i guess there's a couple um components to to that question but but uh and one piece is what what are you harvesting it with that makes a difference and we use row heads and and uh, you're just taking off the head which is better for your machine but it's better for your soil and it's for sure better for for the wildlife because you're leaving all that cover sitting there and protecting the soil and the birds uh just love it so you're going through there and and uh, and, and we treat we treat our wheat we have uh, shell borne headers for that which is like a stripper header where we just take the very top of it off and that plays into it because we'll sometimes then just plant sorghum right into it and it's a it's a great rotation and again just protects that residue we eric touched on I think short-sightedness a little bit, he was talking about um, in regards to uh, some decisions. And that's one thing my dad's always been all about. So we don't we don't disc or till anything up, but also just because someone offers you some money for your, uh, you know, so after you cut your corn or your or your sorghum and they say, hey, we'll give you this much a bale if you let us just get rid of it all. And it's always an attractive number because it's like, you know, you're going to get, $30 an acre, $20 an acre. I mean, it's, you know, thousands and uh, tens of thousands, or if you did everything, you know, I mean, it's a lot of money, but the value of that you lose for your soil and uh, is generally greater than what that check is that you're going to get. And for sure, mm. for the long run, it will be. Uh, and that's kind of how we view uh, no-till as well. And, and we, those areas in iowa you're talking about the black desert they do have much better soil than what we have um and and, you know it's cheaper to till things up um as far as for killing weeds and things like that but you know we're windy out where we are and our soil is a you know a little more sandy and when we till things up i mean your ground you know your uh your future is blowing away. Sometimes mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're sitting there watching that sometime I mean, even, even in no-till um, there's times where, where parts of these fields start blowing and um, for sure we have it happen with our neighbors. And I mean, ever it, it happens to everybody, but if you're, if you're tilling everything up, it happens a lot. And mm-hmm. you lose a lot of, of uh, kind of your, your opportunity and your potential and, and you're mm-hmm. losing, Um, part of your farm really when that's blowing away. So, so, uh, that, that no-till the value of that is, is huge. I mean the birds on our farm have, have their run of everything. You know, we're, we're not tilling up a single field. Uh, so they, they, uh, I saw them out. I mean, they're, they get, they get the go of everything. They get all the food, all everything, just sitting there in the field for them. So they have a full fridge all winter, all spring,
0: so they're good. And the other thing that mm-hmm. I Eric mentioned, um, the birds are naturally magnetized towards that sorghum. It just sort of sucks them right in. The other thing I've noticed, and Ed, uh, this is a question for both of you regarding your hunting operations. It feels like hunters are sucked right towards that sorghum too, aren't they? You know, when, when you're, uh, you know, when, and you, I know both of you guys guide a lot of bird hunters over the course of the fall, and it, you've guided enough people, like, the line just starts naturally moving one way or another, and if you see a sorghum food plot on the horizon, that's a magnet, isn't it?
3: Yeah. It's sure. You know, the other funny thing is like guys that comes from experience knowing I like sorghum because I shoot a lot of birds in sorghum, you know, there, that's not a, uh, that's not just because they think that the thing that is a little bit of a, uh, kind of a false belief though, is that standing milo or standing sorghum is the best thing to hunt. You know, people think that because, well, birds like sorghum and this is standing sorghum. Well, there's not near as much sorghum on the ground when it's standing then after you cut it when you're harvesting that's kind of what creates a lot of bushels per acre that are on the ground so so actually it's Mm -hmm. better after you cut it but everybody like like opening weekend i had my guys out they were kind of like got any got any standing uh you know uncut milo right now And, (laughs) and, and you know that's always what they want same way you know standing corn we you know when you're when it's up in the air when it's standing most of the corn is on the ears so they have some cover but they don't it's hard for them to eat the corn until it gets that's cut, a so. that's
0: such a great point that I've been suckered into my own self. <laughs> I think well, about it. I, I, mean. <laughs> I was hunting a, a spot in western Minnesota like two weeks ago and I went straight for the standing sorghum and I should have looked for the harvested stuff. I because the seeds on the ground, what an it's idiot! A natural. <laughs> Eric you you've had a similar experience uh,
1: yeah yeah you know it's it's a numbers thing it, it's a numbers thing when uh, when you're having guests in that are hunting um they want to see birds and it seems like if you go to those those sorghum plots the the grain sorghum stubble in, in the fields along the grass edges that's where usually the birds are in numbers mm-hmm. you know but for a guy like you with some exceptional short hair pointers <laughs> uh you know you you probably want to key into those little grass areas right next to those right next and to you. you're you're not too worried about seeing 40 50 60 or 100 birds get out of a five acre plot you're probably more interested in, in getting that one or two uh long-tailed roosters that are trying to uh, beat everybody else and and uh, stay in in the other cover so but yeah it's it's a uh, Naturally and inherently, if we have uh, you know the same groups repeat after, year after year, they hunt a variety of different covers, and they almost all of them will say, "So are we going to get to hunt some uh, some sorghum?" Today? <laughs> and just yeah, because they're they're accustomed to knowing that those are usually, as you want to call it, honey holes, right? Yep. That yep. no matter what's what the weather's doing, no matter what the circumstance they're going to see birds. Um, So, yeah, it's like I said, it it is a natural attractant for the birds. And thus, you know, it probably becomes a natural attractant for hunters as well.
0: Right. I mean, there's no it's no secret. That's how it ends up in the photos of uh, the Pheasants Forever Journal in the background. Right. That's so many pheasant and quail um, uh, hunts occur on the edges of, of sorghum. The food and the cover connection. It's just intrinsic. Uh, as we start to wind out, I can't let two of the, the most knowledgeable bird hunters in America go without knowing a little bit about how the season has gone so far. And Eric, you're, you're about, let's see, we're, we're about close to two months in on the South Dakota pheasant season. So let's start with you. you you've been at it a little longer um, this particular year. Um, What are the bird numbers like in northern South Dakota this year?
1: Uh, You know, uh, probably the best we've seen in four or five years uh, easily. Um, Last year was was a was a little bit of a struggle uh, just because we were incredibly wet. Um, Our nesting season was all right. We had a pretty tough winter. So coming into this year, I knew we had the moisture. Uh, for the habitat, right? For the crops, for the habitat, we had more moisture than we we knew what to deal with. Um, but after kind of a tough winter in some areas, I was a little bit concerned, but it just tells you that if you have the habitat and you have a decent growing condition, it tells you the resiliency of, of, of a wild pheasant that um, literally just in one year on our farm, we've probably seen uh at least uh, hundred to two hundred percent increase in birds. Wow just in one year. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the hunting has been phenomenal. Um uh it hasn't been uh hasn't been this good in a number of years. On average it's two to three hours of hunting and, and groups are usually limited out. So the, the biggest problem we have this year is people aren't getting to hunt long enough Mm -hmm. before before they they reach a bag limit um that's always a good problem to have Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you know we've kind of been blessed with some good weather Uh, good in kind of a strange way only hunters would consider this good but we had uh, kind of some December snowstorms uh the third week of October which Honestly, probably was some of the best bird hunting I have ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had about four days when it was just incredible. And you can talk to a bunch of hunters that were here hunting. The incredible hunting, and this is, I'm not making this up. The incredible hunting was in the sorghum food plots. Um, that's where those birds were after that snow hit and that cold weather. They held so tight. Um, it's just something you don't see a wild pheasant do very often. Mm-hmm. Um, uh and so it was, it was really good. And, and the rest of the season has been going on great. The weather is just beautiful here now. Um, so I expect that to
0: continue and and the late season hunts look to be pretty good. So I want, you know, for folks that are looking for a world-class pheasant hunting experience in South Dakota, I can't point you in a better place than Eric Johansson, as you can hear on a um I'm a podcast here. First of all, he's a wonderful human being, great family man. Um, we've held as an organization media events with Eric because we know him. We trust him. We believe in his con- conservation ethic and um, we believe in, in his hunting ethic. So um, if you're looking for a place to go in, in, in South Dakota, Eric, where what's your website? How can how can folks uh, connect with you?
1: Yeah, they can find us, uh, at Johansson Farms, uh, pretty much anywhere. So johanssonfarms.com, uh, they can kind of keep on, uh, up to date with what's happening on the farm, not only just on the hunting side, but on the production side, the cattle operation at, uh, on, uh, Instagram, Johansson Farms, uh, Facebook, same as well. So, um, yeah, thank you for that, uh, honored and, and humbled to, uh, ha- have the relationship with, with you guys, Pheasants Forever, um, and, uh, getting a chance to meet some of the people at uh, the sorghum growers. I know we worked uh, with Jennifer Blackburn in the past, uh, uh, Julia Debs. Uh, I think uh, she's no longer with sorghum. She's now a full-time uh, farmer herself, I believe. Uh, but yeah, it's just an honor to ha- get a chance for our family to get a chance to meet such great people in this, in this ride of farming, ranching, and wildlife.
0: And a similar uh, testimonial for our, for our newer buddy, In Kansas, uh, Garrett Love and the Love Family. When you watch the video, you'll fall in love with his beautiful little daughter, who has a smile that'll light up the world. Uh, And Similar conservation ethic and and partner um, to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, Garrett. Um, Garrett, tell us a little bit about, um, your season's only been going now for maybe two weeks, as opposed to two months. That you know, Eric talked about in South Dakota. Tell us about the pheasant and quail season so far in Kansas.
3: Yeah, actually, it's only been and thanks and uh, thanks for that, Bob. But yeah, we've only been going for for a week here. It kind of was a fell on a little later date than normal, so we only have this week, week and a half before Thanksgiving comes. Uh, but but it's been you know it's been good. I'd say we average about a South Dakota limit uh not a kansas limit so we got about three birds a guy you know not the four birds a guy in kansas we've had we've had it some but but that's probably where we're we're averaging and looking at and good good opportunity a lot of birds um quail numbers seem and just around the roads and and out in the fields seem similar i don't know that they're up but they've they've been at a strong place the last few years uh i mean my my brother-in-law couple other friends come to last weekend and and uh you know the very last weekend of the season and limited out on pheasants and limited out on quail and for us the thought of limiting out on quail which in kansas Mm. the bobwhite quail limit is eight birds a guy i didn't think that would ever really be happening in the last two years you know we've done that at the end of the season the problem is a lot of guys have pheasant loads in and and uh i've seen groups go about two for 90 shooting at shooting a wild quail so <laughs> about three four percent shooting is, averages
0: that is such I'm, a hard decision when you're hunting in kansas though it's like yeah it is you could shoot four roosters so you want to have that four shot in but then you could shoot eight quail and you want to have the seven and a half shot what do you tell people
3: right i mean pheasant is the bigger priority for most people uh and here's the thing, it's if you have that seven or eight shot, in, that's not really gonna probably always do the job. Do the job with the peasants. So, so yeah, that's that's part of what what the issue is. But everybody, I mean, I've seen quail just fly down a line of nine, ten guys, and fifteen shots. You know, or or a whole cubby gets up, and it's like, how did nobody not hit one of these quail? You know? <laughs> that's one of the great things about quail. And then the other fun thing yeah. is, I mean, I say fun, but sometimes when they land somewhere and you go, you go over there and work the area and it's like, they got the heck out of there and disappeared. And I, I think that's a neat thing about quail and that's a good thing because it makes it to where they keep, keep chugging along and, and, uh, I'm, you know, I've been excited having them around our farm, but yeah. So, so I'd say strong, uh, pheasants. We've got a couple, we got three or four sections where, where, uh, I'd say it's up significantly. One of those areas is right next to a, so, so Eric's in the Prairie Pothole region. We're kind of in the uh, playas, the wetland playas, uh, major zone coming up through Western Kansas. Um, so we have a lot of like the Sandhill cranes and other migratory birds come through and, and uh, FF, they prioritized um, that with the migratory bird program and in these playas, which is kind of the same thing, taking some uh, ground out of, production and so we we have the forage sorghum and some sorghum in it the first year and and so that's that area that has that 40 acres then it has about quite a bit of crp and then it has regular sorghum all right around there that's the best area by far that that area Hmm. guy can come it out pretty quick
0: Hmm. and if folks want to uh connect with you in kansas how do they how do they find out about your hunting operation
3: uh, well, I've been told the last couple of weeks that my website's down and I've been too busy to fix it, uh, but I'm on uh, uh, Facebook, it's Western Kansas Pheasant Hunt, and then on Twitter and Instagram, it's Kansas Pheasants, and we kind of keep things posted on there, and, and so you can find information. You can message me on there or anything if you have any questions.
0: Outstanding. Um, Kira, folks want to learn more about the sorghum checkoff program and how... Uh, how they might be able to connect and learn more about getting sorghum on their operation, or maybe just even sorghum as a wildlife uh, uh, solution on their property. How do they learn more?
2: Sure. If you want to learn more about sorghum, definitely uh, jump online. Uh, You can visit us on our website. That's just sorghumcheckoff.com. But we are also on social media, both Facebook and Twitter. So please follow us and uh, you can kind of keep up with all the exciting news coming out.
0: So as, as we, put a bow on this episode what um what are some closing thoughts or any any st- comments that uh and maybe i missed along the way that I uh, want to make sure that our listeners um understand between the connection between pheasants quail sorghum and environmental sustainability and, and we'll start start with eric uh, what's your closing thought for um for heading into the uh um as we head into the close of the hunting season and and closing up this podcast? Uh,
1: From a, from a wildlife habitat standpoint, um, I think it's, it's, sorghum is a key component of, of the conservation puzzle. So if you want upland birds, pheasant quail, you need nesting conditions, you need brood rearing areas and you need winter cover, um, at least in our area. And uh, sorghum provides, a lot of those all at the same time. So in a no-till situation, the standing stubble from the year before can actually provide nesting conditions. Um, and then obviously the crop itself for that year provides the winter cover, food source, everything else. So um, when it comes to when it comes to the, the wildlife habitat part of it, um, in our operation and, and I think in, in a lot of farms and ranches across the country, Sorghum can play a, a pretty major role in in providing everything that wildlife
0: needs. Yeah, it really is at the center of that Venn diagram, isn't it? Between wildlife habitat, soil health, rural yes, economies. Garrett, what's your uh, uh, closing thoughts for us?
3: You know, I, I was wanting to touch on one last thing on uh, it. Actually, another Peasant Forever friend of mine on Twitter, Ryan Heinegger, he's really been having a big push on precision ag and, and, uh, kind of trying to make smart, profitable, and good conservation, uh, decisions for your farm. And I've kind of been following him for a while too. And, and, and I think a lot of people should check out kind of what's going on there with that effort. Um, and really trying to look at low productivity areas like Eric talked about, they have some and, and be like, if you're some of these areas, and you can get this data now, uh, you, you're not making money on it and you're it hurts your yields on the, on the field. And we have a, with a CRP enrollment coming, opening up soon, you can make some decisions. A lot of guys in my area, you know, you either do a whole quarter of CRP or, or nothing, but I think guys really should be checking out that opportunity to take some of those low production zones um, and converting them. And some of it say for us it's hilltops or blowout areas too. We're, it's more vulnerable to blowing. You need to get maybe some grass uh, or something else established there. Um, and and I, and also, if I didn't, we you know I don't know if I touched specifically on uh, just the the value of sorghum in our operation. And I think I talked about the profitability some, but I wanted to echo the the um, water smartness of it as far as mm. how far it can go with a limited amount of water and you know, say we had, we had, we grow a lot of corn too. We had some corn that it didn't make it to that rain this year. We ended up having a lot of rain in July. It didn't quite make it. And we got almost nothing out of that corn where sorghum, you know, it would have. And being that tough is valuable as a piece of your production on your farm. Uh, In addition to, I think what we've established is clearly great for the wildlife and great for the birds and, and we're excited with those prices coming up um, to have it play even a bigger role. Uh, so I guess keep finding that piece where you can be profitable and uh, sustainable at the same time and have lots of pheasants and quail. That makes that makes us happy. And we're <laughs> glad uh, Pheasants Forever and the Sorghum Checkoff are, are working on that. And I uh, hope that continues, uh, continues to happen.
0: Those are some some great call-outs. Um, so a shout-out, another shout-out to Ryan Heinegger, and particularly producers that are out there that want to uh, understand better the connection between um, wildlife habitat and, and, and farm production, because Ryan is a biologist that works for us who also farms um, his his family farm um, down in Iowa. You can connect with Ryan Heinegger, H E I N i g e r on twitter and his handle on twitter is at farm r hunt r so f-a-r-m-r-h-u-n-t-r so twitter farmer hunter uh ryan heineger and our precision ag program and we're we're in the neighborhood of 15 precision ag and conservation specialists on staff now at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. You can learn more either at PheasantsForever.org or QuailForever.org under the conservation tag tab and then look for precision agriculture. We got a very robust section of our website dedicated to precision agriculture. where are uh, partners with um, uh, John Deere, in particular, on our precision ag front, uh, working with with John Deere to, to find um, those acres that are unprofitable, those red acres, and turning them green through not only from an environmental green perspective, but a profitability perspective. So as Garrett mentioned, there's there's places on every farm, whether they're corners, whether they're low spots, whether they're hi- high spots, hills. That um, a conservation practice um, can be a great solution for profitability, for wildlife, for soil health, and for um, uh, for water quality. And and Kira shaking her head in affirmative. And as a sustainability director, that probably resonates with you. Uh, give us your final thoughts, Kira.
2: No, you're you're exactly right, Bob. And you know we're we're really excited about this this growing partnership with pheasants and 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 quail and you know, Garrett really hit the nail on the head. There's a lot out there. When you start talking about sustainability, there's a lot of talking about it. There are a lot of different opinions about it, but it's something that's really right front and center in front of our growers. And, um, you know, sorghum is is pretty lucky when we look across all of our growers they're already implementing so many incredible soil health practices and you know that stewardship to the land and and sustainability is front and center for for many of them and we're we are very excited about that and we know that there are challenges that continue to to come down uh to them and we believe that there are a number of um, solutions that sorghum can offer to those challenges. And at the end of the day, front and center, what we want to, uh, you know, really help facilitate for our growers are those solutions that do all the things that you guys just talked about, right. That are good from a sustainability standpoint. They're good from a wildlife standpoint, soil health, um, all of those, those environmental needs that at the same time are good from an economic sustainability standpoint for the farm with you know from in terms of profitability and how can we strategically use the information that we can gather the data to to make those smart decisions on the farm but at the same time how can we also at this be supporting and and growing our rural communities which is where you know especially as we sit here today and we talk about hunting that's such an incredible um you know source of 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 income and an economic driver for many of these communities so how can we capture all of those together in our efforts and that's what we're really trying to do and so you know it's it's been really great hearing from from eric and garrett and their you know perspectives and points of view and and very encouraging as we walk down this road and and we say okay you know, we, we want the farmers to, to lead this and we want the farmers to also very much benefit from this. So we're excited.
0: Yeah, really well said. Um, Kira, Eric, Garrett, thank you so much for spending time with, uh, with us today. And, and most importantly, thank you you know, for your overarching commitment to, to conservation through Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. It's partners, it's producers, it's members. Uh, like the three of you, that um, and, and the organizations and, and companies and businesses that you represent that really make a difference for, for our ability to be successful on the landscape. Well, thanks for your time. Uh, at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, we are uh, being very deliberate about working with farmers, ranchers, producers uh, to find that common ground between agricultural production and conservation practices that create habitat. And it's that combination of finding that common ground that uh, creates a win for wildlife habitat and hunters. And sorghum is the center of that Venn diagram for us. Um, and we're thrilled to uh, be partnering with the Sorghum Checkout. Learn more about this program and I'll uh, call out that video once again. Uh, you can find it on our social media channels. Um, a partnership between Sorghum, Pheasants Forever, and Quail Forever. All right, folks, thanks for listening. It's hunting season. Get out there, introduce somebody to the outdoors, be safe, have fun, and always follow the dog. Something good will arise. Thanks for listening.